Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello, friend. Hope you're having an amazing day. See what happens when you join the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. I am here with my man, Nikolai Elahus. How you doing, Nikolai? I'm doing very well, thank you. And uh, yeah, let me just say thank you for for inviting me to to be part of this. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this uh, podcast, and oh, wow. I've actually connected with a lot of the previous uh, interviewees that you had just because I I thought they had some really cool things to say. So uh, I, I'm always looking forward to getting my extra greeting as an <laughs> editor. Well, so I, I look forward to that. Now you get to be here for the extra greetings. Uh, I can't. I can't believe it, and I'm very humble. I mean, uh, the 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 range of people that you have here of scholars and authors, and you know, I, I it's a uh, very humble to to uh, to to hope to have something interesting to say here among all those uh, all those interviews interviewees you had. Well, how, how kind of you to say you're in, uh, you're in good company. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to, to get you on. You first kind of came on my radar when you were nominated for that award from, uh, mm -hmm. from Compliance Week. And I just, as I kind of dug in, I was like, oh man, I got to get this guy in here and pick his brain. For those of you who have been living under a rock and don't follow Compliance Week, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the, what the essence of that category was and, you know, kind of what you did to kind of get on that list? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so Compliance Week, I think this is the second year that they're running uh, this range of, of uh, awards within the, the compliance uh, industry. So uh, it ranges from a compliance mentor to uh, chief compliance officer of the year and so on. And uh, I was one of uh, the finalists in the compliance innovator uh, of the year. Um, and uh, I think how I got to be there was uh, actually a, uh, a person that I uh, also teach uh, different enterprise risk management and compliance courses with. He, uh, he ended up nominating me based on uh, some of the, the, the things I'd come up with to, to manage the corona pandemic. And oh, cool. uh, more, more specifically, it was about how to keep uh, compliance, uh, both the compliance program, but also just um, compliance elements uh, kind of present for everyone working from home. Uh, you know, it's a new new scenario everyone was facing, uh, staying away from each other as much as possible. Uh, but uh, so all of a sudden, I didn't have all the communication channels I normally had. I couldn't put roll-ups in the offices, I couldn't put posters, I couldn't uh, be uh, present in the office to just have those uh, coffee chats with, with people. So uh, both I was kind of disconnected, I think, with, mm -hmm. with everyone uh, as everyone else was, uh, but I also didn't have the same, I think, presence towards uh, everyone in the company. Uh, and uh, so basically what I came up with, and, and I think it sounds very, very basic, but was to make some very short uh, homemade video, videos uh, where I was talking about uh, various compliance issues uh, and, and topics that uh, everyone should still have at the top of their mind, even though they're working from home. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I, when, I, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a movie instructor or a director or something like that. Uh, and finally, I get to be it uh, during a corona pandemic <laughs> and shoot my own little videos, uh, though in a different setting than the Spielberg uh, way, I think. 
So uh, tell me about those little videos. Um, you know, I spend so much time talking with folks like you uh, and other organizations. And the thing that we're really pushing is this compliance 3.0 thing, where it's really kind of moving toward effectiveness. And I just see so many people get so caught up in, well, I don't have the budget, or I don't have the support, or I don't, you know, I can't hire a film crew to come out and put together some high production value video. I mm. love the kind of guerrilla marketing or kind of grassroots approach that it sounds like you took. Tell us a little bit about like the nature of those videos and how simple they were relative to the the big screen production that you know we see on the on, uh, in the movie theater. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, I mean and and the the business I'm in it with Bank and Olsen is a is a retail business, so definitely a, a business that has been hit by uh, Corona in the sense that uh, shops and uh, were closed, but of course then. Uh, e-com has, has gone up as people ordering online instead uh, but um, so so budgets were, were hit and and I didn't have that budget as well for for the big uh, production uh, value and and very much as you say uh, guerrilla marketing is uh, you know I'm I'm not too fancy uh, or think I'm too high on a pedestal to uh, to be very basic and and uh, you know, take the, the low hanging fruits if they're there. So uh, what I really did was during the past year, whenever we've um, had some of these classical, uh, you know, international days of data privacy, anti-corruption and so on, I would make a video about that topic and put it into, uh, you know, a scenario that people within Bangor Wilson could uh, recognize with. Uh, so first off, it was very simple, pretty much like uh, I'm speaking with you, set up my uh, computer uh, a little higher than, than normal and then uh, just pushing the record button. And then I had some very basic editing tools uh, at home uh, that I edited and made sure that I, I did a couple of takes. So at least I wasn't, uh, you know, messing up too much. So right. so I think that was the kind of how it started off. And then I, I actually developed into a you know, still not Hollywood production, but uh, I actually have a, a small drone uh, that can uh, tape, uh, you know, record as well. And uh, so uh, we were encouraged to uh, all employees to go out and go for a walk uh, just to make sure we have mental health and, yeah. and so on. So I kind of picked up on that idea and I said, OK, I will invite everyone with Bang & Olsen on my own personal walkathon uh, where I'm kind of recording from a drone, cool. myself walking with my daughter in, in the baby carriage. And then uh, I just did a speak over uh, uh, talking about uh, gift policy uh, during the International Anti-Corruption Day. So took took the production value up a little bit, uh, but still uh, still pretty basic and something that I could do. What a smart move. Um... It's not, there's, there's novelty in it, right? You're mm. going, there's, uh, you're humanizing compliance in it. You're walking with your daughter. You're just like mm -hmm. everybody else. And you're yeah. tying it in with some simple tools to get a message across that fights against this forgetting curve that most ethics and compliance, uh, you know, departments have to deal with, with respect to their workforce due to the way that they interact with them. Again, this is a broad yeah. brushstroke, but many ethics and compliance functions are relying on that single pillar training once a year to say, hey, here's our code of conduct. Here's our, you know, here are anti-corruption policies attest to this and all that. Well, we all know that if you don't use that information within a short amount of time, you're just going to forget it. So yeah. it, there's, you know, there's just such an opportunity um, 
for ethics and compliance to fight for that attention because we're in this totally tension economy right now. Mm. I love mm. that you innovated by just doing something simple, kind of stepping outside of your lane, so to speak, um, and getting some more touch points and some more, you know, points of interaction with the broader workforce to not only, you know, humanize and make that connection, but more importantly, perhaps more importantly, I guess, um, remind them of these issues are, you know, just because Corona came doesn't mean that anti-corruption is out of the picture, right? Like we have to, no, we right. have to manage those anti-corruption um, issues in the context of, you know, in the reality of Corona and this new environment that we're in. So how long yeah. were your videos? What, how did you kind of pick topics and how did you distribute those things? Yeah. So uh, uh, the topics were uh, predominantly, again, it were kind of tied to these international days of, of the different topics. So, um, so I kind of let that be the, the uh, cadence, I guess you could call it. Um, and then for as as for the length of it, I think the longest was uh, probably the drone video, which was about five or six minutes. Awesome. So you know, pretty short. Uh, and and I think you know we over a hundred, we have about eight hundred employees with Bang and Olsen and. I think I have over just over a hundred uh, views on it. Wow. So, for for me, I think um, you know I'll I'll take that uh, for for uh, attendance, and I, I think that's a good good reach on something that you know I just kind of uh, picked up myself and, and tried. To. Yeah, you're getting over ten percent of your workforce to engage with this thing at some level, and even if they don't mm. watch the whole thing, they're going to be reminded of anti corruption or they're going to see that yeah. that picture of you with your daughter in the baby carriage walking um it's very uh it's very smart and then how did you distribute these out was that over email was it over slack or what yeah so so that was in in our uh, intranet site that we uh, we have used sharepoint for uh i i did a, a deal with our communication department to uh, to uh, to put an article on our on the front page of our, our uh, what we call Bio Web, so our, our internet site. So whenever someone logged in, and everyone would do that every day yep. uh, as part of their job uh, to get updated on on recent news and promotions and whatnot, that would be kind of on the top of their screen when they logged in. So at least the visibility was there, and then it was just a matter of people actually pressing that article. Um, and how hard was that to get the communications department to do this? Did you, how many um, teeth did you have to pull? How many arms did you have to break? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, like, I mean, you know, our, our communication department, I think is, is, uh, you know, they, they have working with limited budget as well as, as many other, and we have to prioritize that. So, you know, anyone that comes to them with a almost done, uh, product as I did, you know, they, they are all for it. Uh, and, and they're, you know, very willing to help and, um, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't need a lot from them in order to accomplish this. So I think that's kind of, uh, it, it was really a no hassle. I think it's when it, when it comes to the larger campaigns and so on, where you really need their, uh, you know, their resources a lot more, that's a bit more planning and making sure it fit into the program. But this was, this was a very straightforward, uh, uh, you know, uh, deal for, for us to, to see the value in. So, you know, there's so many takeaways from just this little story, and it makes sense why you made this list. Um, but, you know, the more you can do for them, the easier you can make it for them to say yes, the better, right? So you came mm -hmm. to them with something baked. You said, hey, can we just do this? It's no sweat off their back. They don't have to put a whole campaign, as you said, 
to together. It's really kind of plug and play. And I love how you've kind of stepped out of the lane, as I said before, you stepped out of the lane and you said to yourself, you know what, uh, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to solve for the outcome I want. I'm not going to let these constraints of Corona or of budget or of never having, you know, filmed a video before or whatever, stop me from reaching that end goal. And you figured out a way to do it. So that kind of tenacity, I think the more that we lean into it, you start to see the opportunity around you because like there's so much DIY stuff you can get. You can download freeware to edit videos. There's, you know, you can spend $5 on an app on your phone that'll let you put, you know, text on a video or something like that. The democratization of all of this production, you know, tools or all these production tools really opens up a lot of doorways for us who are trying to, again, you know, uh, transact in that information or transact in that um, attention economy that we're all living in. No, I mean, it was very, uh, as you say, you know, very easy. I think the only really money I, I spent was uh, to to have some some music play in the background and and bought a, a license for that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, very 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 low budget. And I think for me, it was the the, the biggest thing is, um, you know, I, I think both as a as a kind of a chief compliance officer, you. You you know you you want to push some weight in the business in terms of people, you know they look at you as a role model. You you do the right things. You you know you have the right answers hopefully to to a lot of things. So for me to all of a sudden I think uh, you know expose myself in that way in a you know uh, uh, you know just being very uh, uh, honest I guess in front of the camera and uh, not a lot of scripted uh, right. thing in it. And uh, as you say, you know, just showing myself out for a walk uh, in my local uh, neighborhood, uh, it, it was a it was a little daring for me, and and I'm not a natural in front of a, a camera, but uh, you know, once it's out there and all the positive feedback I got from it, uh, of course, just encourages me to totally. to keep on doing that. Uh, and and again, during I think Corona is that there's a higher um, acceptance of both trying new ways, whether it's yes. a compliance program or someone else. And I mean, we are a, you know, we're a strong marketing company in the way that we, you know, our marketing material for our products and so on. That's all, you know, very, very high end professional things. So all of that is, uh, you know, the corporate visual identity and all of that is very closely kind of managed and, and so on, which it should be for, sure. for a luxury brand. But uh, I think during that time, here's also a space for everyone to accept, okay, you know, here's not something that has that same, you know, luxurious feel as long as, of course, it's internally for, for just the employees as well. But, you know, I guess what I would kind of posit here is that as we get, as, you know, we all as a population get, you know, increasingly more bombarded with stimulus on our phone, on our Twitter feed, on whatever, um, there's like a commensurate drop in the standard for like what's acceptable stimulus. You mm. know what I'm saying? Like mm. there was a time in the nineties or the early two thousands. If you saw something from your corporate, from your corporation that looked like it was filmed on a steady cam or a hand cam, you'd be like, this looks so freaking cheap. It looks stupid, but we've been desensitized to that because everybody's filming on their phone and all the, you know, all the, all the videos are in, you know, portrait mode instead of landscape mode, like all those things that used to be sins, you know, as soon as we kind of yeah. first got, uh, smartphones, again, opens up this opportunity for us. And as that sort of bar for like what's acceptable stimulus drops, what fills that hole is this awesome, this authenticity piece. And that's just, that's something we can all reach at, reach for. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm saying that if, 
you know, if for us to sort of compete for attention, we, we needed a high production value video. Well, then there's a bunch of us who could never get that because we don't have the budget, because we don't have the vision at the corp or at the, you know, executive level to spend that money or put those resources to work. Yeah. I'm saying that now we all have authenticity in us. We all have actual authentic relationships in our lives. And if we can get over our own insecurities and drop that guard a little bit and engage in that authenticity, you can start to really supercharge your influence, which I think you've seen firsthand. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. And I think I, I mean, authenticity, I think is not, it's not necessarily an, a value I express a lot, but it's definitely something I, I, you know, I go by a lot, meaning that, you know, for, for my professional purposes as a compliance officer, you know, I like to, I like to state things as they are, you know, I'd like to bring out the, the things that are not working, uh, not, not by pointing fingers, but kind of summarize, you know, uh, these are the things that are going wrong and, and how can we, uh, you know, improve those to, to go forward. I think those taking the learnings from those are, are really valuable. And then, um, also just being, uh, able also for myself to, to state, okay, here's something that I've done wrong. This is not something that's fully functioned. I tried to put in a new process, uh, and here six months later, I figure out, okay, it's not, it was really not never really working the, the way I thought it would be. And then stepping up and admitting that, I think just uh, to bring that fellowship for, for compliance, I think this is, this is a, a big piece of it, uh, not to be a superhuman, uh, but, but really uh, tell things as they are and also show that you, you know, you're just as everyone else uh, trying to figure out what's the right and, and wrong thing to do. Yeah. And I think overcoming that imposter syndrome that many times causes us to retain that sort of facade of inhuman ability, which you just said, mm. um, ends up compromising our authenticity and ends mm. up creating this sort of avatar of what people assume someone in our role is like. And that's very mm. two dimensional. It doesn't have that personality piece or that heart piece or that, you know, the frustration piece or, or whatever those things that are that are part of the sort of human experience that make us who we are. And that kind of straightforward, hey, reality is our friend. Um, I tried this. It didn't work. It just makes you so much more approachable. It makes you so much more human and thus makes your message so much more, you know, palatable for folks whose behavior you're trying to influence. I, I think uh, the, the lucky thing for me and I, I kind of when I look back at the, I guess, by, by career, uh, I mean, a lot of it is uh, there are a lot of points where I can uh, nail down that this was a a lucky turning point for sure. me, and and one one uh, important experience I had was uh, very early on in my career, where I uh, I was tasked to manage a, a very large uh, project, and uh, I think it took about uh, four months, and uh, we kind of had to acknowledge that I had full on uh, failed on uh, it was it was introducing a, a global. Um, I guess uh, a guideline based on on different uh, policies uh, within compliance area, yeah. and and I'd fully kind of I'd failed because I both misunderstood I guess the scope of it, I misunderstood the the key stakeholders in it and the key audience, and uh, recognizing that that I had failed on something that had that magnitude and was really important to the business was really important for me. Uh, and lucky for me to think, okay, wait, it's good for me to acknowledge these things. And then the the key learning for me at that point was to to take a project manager uh, course. So I, I, you know, up my skills in managing large scale projects. 
something that you know just because you're a licensed attorney doesn't mean you're you're a natural born project manager right. so so that was a realization there and all of those things that i learned for that you know i've used uh, ever since and and you know being a compliance officer is being a project manager for a large part right. so so you know i was just lucky to have that and and uh, and i think being humble about that experience and i bring it up over and over again when i kind of say okay you know i i i fail as much as as the next guy so um so i think that authenticity is is really yeah important and you probably also learned that the cost of failure is probably not as high as you thought it was before it happened. Not to say that like we, sh you know, be laissez-faire or flippant about failing. Obviously, we want to succeed and hit our objectives and so forth. But I just find so many people get so nervous about failing that fear of failure ends up paralyzing them in some ways and causes them not to stretch and so forth. And, you know, if you're not failing, I think you're not learning. And all those failures are really kind of opportunities for lessons. And look at this lesson that that failure has created for you. It's something that you carry forward and use as a tool and a point of leverage in other interactions and in different organizations and different projects or whatever down the road. It's a really, it's a great learning that you were able to kind of synthesize into almost a, uh, a strength for yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, and I think it spans, uh, you know, wider than, than that as well, because if it's, you know, it's, it's the failure and it's the tough times where you yeah. really grow. I mean, when I, Again, when I look back, it's, uh, you know, I was in a, in a company where we had a really big transformation of the entire company. We had to move departments uh, away from certain countries. We had to lay off people. And, and I was kind of the ambassador for a lot of these uh, initiatives. So uh, having to deal with all of that and having people express uh, anger and right. And, uh, and, you know, just being sad about being laid off. And, and I had to be the guy absorbing all of this. Yeah. Uh, extremely tough time, I think, to, to be the representative of these decisions being made by uh, top management. But when I look back at it, I mean, it really, really, uh, I learned so much from it. And I learned uh, that, you know, having a big respect about investigations and all that when you're really dealing with personals uh private life as well and and maybe able to impact them on their employment i i have a huge respect of that and because i know it it affects me as well as, as a person to be dealt with that responsibility um and the same now i guess when you know when corona hits again a challenging time for most and then something like this pops up you have to think creatively you have to come up with new ways and that's where you keep learning okay maybe i don't need always the big production value <laughs> hollywood movie but i could do with uh, my little drone and uh, my 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 girl in her baby carriage and and that will actually get something across as well so uh, I think these challenges are a great opportunities to, to grow and learn. Uh, that, that definitely, that's, that's for sure. So let's go back. You uh, grew up wanting to be a movie director. What was it about that that was so interesting to you? And then how did your career take that right turn or left turn, I don't know, uh, to wind up now in the compliance game getting nominated for such a prestigious award? How did you get to where you're at? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I I don't know how I got lost from the from the movie director <laughs> uh, profession. I, I think in eighth grade uh, in in Denmark, everyone has to spend two weeks uh, working somewhere to get a little insight into uh, I guess how it is once you're you're done with school. Yeah. And I applied for an, a, a two two week apprenticeship with my favorite uh, program on TV that was uh, reviewing computer games and oh, and. Cool. Uh, 
know, cartoons and stuff. And uh, I got rejected from that apprenticeship. And instead, I got a, an apprenticeship in a finance department <laughs> in a large pharmaceutical. And it, that was very far from what I was think, thinking I wanted to be. So I think maybe that was what what uh, put off that dream. dream yeah. It shattered my dreams. I never got <laughs> back to it. eighth grader, man. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, but but uh, again, pure luck, uh, really, that, that I am where I am. Um, you know, I... I uh, uh, I, I guess after, um, you know, I, I, in law school, I really chose to study law because it was like an open book. I, it wasn't really, uh, you know, putting me in a box of a very, very certain profession. It right. seemed like something I could use to a lot of uh, different things. And uh, primarily, I, I think I, I used it for, uh, you know, going out, exploring abroad as well. I had a lot of opportunity to to study a year in France and study in a year in the U.S. and uh, and I, I just uh, that that's always been a part of my life working in international settings and and going abroad. So uh, that was primarily, I guess, what I used the the you know, law school for. Um, but at the same time, when I kind of look back at it, there's some indications that uh, I think give a good uh, sign of where I am today because I, I remember in. Uh, for my bachelor thesis, I wrote uh, about uh, the the criminal uh, in the criminal act and how we uh, the the how we penalize uh, rape and then the possibilities of opening up a lesser degree of proof of rape in order to target uh, date rape cases and mm -hmm. married uh, rape cases. So I was very interested in the kind of like criminal aspect of of law. Um, and then uh, later on for my master thesis, I wrote about uh, law of um, conflicts. Uh, so the definition of torture right at that time was when waterboarding was being discussed yeah. as an uh, interrogation method and whether uh, that was legal or not or could be uh, considered a torture. So, so, you know, not to say that being a compliance officer necessarily has a lot with those things to do, but, uh, but at least it, there are aspects of uh, you know, what is right and wrong, what is, um, you know, what what are sanctions that you apply towards uh, behavior that is wrong. So I think that's at least a little bit of a, a you know, a, a small sign of, of where I am today, that those aspects of law school kind of, I guess, in, intrigued me in some way. Um, and then uh, really my first job, again, was uh, very weird. I had, uh, you know, applied for different jobs and I ended up in a bank uh, and um, working with corporate governance issues. And then uh, about three months after I started, there was some new EU uh, legislation coming into place uh, called the, the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive, which was a huge piece of legislation trying to address uh, investor protection and uh, increasing control mechanisms in financial institutions. And it brought along a requirement to have a compliance function in financial institutions. So pension funds and, and banks and uh, insurance companies, for instance. And uh, I was the last guy to join the legal department. And they kind of <laughs> said, well, hey, new guy, couldn't this be something <laughs> that you, uh, you you take care of? Yeah, this uh, sounds for right us. up your alley since you're new. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and uh, of course, I had no, no clue what uh, compliance was all about. And luckily, they hired in a, a, a manager to that had uh, a little more insights into it, 
but but we kind of started that up, built a compliance team. I then uh, you know moved on to be the the group uh, anti money laundering officer, dealing with insider trading cases, and and actually ended up uh, filing a report on on the large, what became the largest insider trading case in Denmark uh, ever to be. Wow! Uh, because it was something we we caught in the systems there. Uh, and the, then some of the controls you put into place was able to kind of grab this this yes transaction yes correct yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and uh, interesting then um, I uh, I moved on to uh, a large pharmaceutical company where that person who was the insider had been employed really so I I uh, I, I did I you know it was very interesting because I, of course I had seen the entire case from my perspective working in the bank filing the this uh, this case to the public prosecution office and then i moved into the legal department in this pharmaceutical company and i could kind of get what happened at their side gotcha. of things when they were so how they kind of put that whole case together uh from the public prosecution uh, prosecution office uh, it was just really an interesting oh, cool. move um, but primarily, I was there to to help uh, ensure compliance with a, a deferred prosecution agreement that the uh, pharmaceutical had made with the Department of Justice in the U.S. because they had violated uh, the U.N. sanction regime against uh, Saddam Hussein and and the and, and Iraq at the time. Got it. Uh, so so they had a, a three-year uh, agreement there that that they had to put a lot of resources and focus into compliance. Uh, so, so spent a lot, a lot of good years there, and and had to convince again to the U.S. and and China as well. Oh, cool. Lived for a couple of months in in Beijing, um, and uh, and then moving on to another pharmaceutical, setting up again a compliance uh, area and, and legal department for them, just covering the Nordic uh, areas. And then uh, the last job I had was in a, a medical device company. Uh, as a, a chief compliance officer, uh, setting up a global compliance program again. Wow. And now here at Bang & Olsen, again, setting up a new compliance program. So that's kind of been the, the thing, at least from now, that uh, has always been, I guess, my my game has been setting up new compliance programs. But it also makes sense in Denmark and I think in Europe in general, we are you know, 15, 20 years behind the U.S. on on compliance. You know, I, I was lucky. I got to be asked to take care of compliance right at the time when compliance became a legal requirement in the first industry in Europe in 2007. That's and, in the banking uh, industry? That was in the banking yeah. industry. And, uh, and, you know, maybe some, of course, have worked with it before, but on more on a voluntary basis. And now you can kind of see in Europe that has had a spillover effect from the financial sector to pharmaceutical area and other big industries, mining and and uh, construction and so on. And and now here in, uh, you know, uh, uh, consumer goods, uh, luxury goods that I'm in now uh, has also started to recognize that perhaps there's uh, something that that could bring value to, to the business. So, so, so you, I was just very lucky. Yeah. Very, very lucky, very cool experiences. And it's almost like you've ridden this sort of compliance wave as it's crashed across Europe. First it was yeah. in financial and then you transitioned over to pharma and medical device. And now it's, you know, now it's kind of washing on the shores of, yeah. you know, consumer goods and you've just been yeah. kind of riding this thing the whole way. Um, I'd love to talk about kind of what that was like moving from, 
you know, you came into uh, the bank, right, as this stuff was kind of kicking off, you got to sign this thing, then you moved over to the, f- the pharmaceutical side. What was what what were the biggest differences between those two different sort of spheres or, you know, industry realms? Um, and what were some of the similarities that you were able to draw on from your previous experience in financial to like magnify your impact as you were standing up that program in pharmaceutical? Mm-hmm. Uh, huge difference, huge difference. I, I don't think that's a difference uh, just between the particular bank I was in and the particular pharmaceutical I was in. Uh, so, so the difference really being, I think the 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 point when you work in a pharmaceutical company or a medical device or and probably a lot of other industries as well you know that the product that you are putting out really uh, makes a difference for the people who have to take the drug that you're making or use the, the device that you're uh, manufacturing. And it, and it really, I mean, it needs to create a positive impact on that person. Right. That's, that's why you're doing it. And at the same time, everyone, at least from my experience, have a really good understanding that, you know, you have to have very high set of quality a mindset in order to to not mess this thing up you right. know you have to put a product on the market that is exactly what you promise it to be right. because at the end of the day you can really hurt someone if, if you don't do that so from from what i've seen at least i think uh, a lot of people working in the pharmaceutical area they they have a mindset where they understand if something kind of needs to be done whether it's a regulatory requirement or simply because it's kind of the right thing to do you will not have a lot of discussions on it uh, because people just say okay well of course we need to do this Got we it. have to you know we have to do the best uh, thing that is out there it's almost like they're uh, more susceptible to compliant behavior given the industry they're in and the pro- the impact that that product is meant to have on yeah. the buyer and or- and and you have a lot more departments kind of preaching this, you know, you have a regulatory department, you have a quality department, all these departments are huge in the pharmaceutical industry. So I think even if you work in marketing or something, you are hit by a lot of different departments that are all preaching the same, uh, you know, uh, values and, and, yeah, yeah. and quality mindset. So, so you really have no place there if you don't buy into that. Um, and, and so it's not just the compliance department that is, is, is doing that. And in the bank that I worked at, I think, you know, extremely competitive environment, uh, you know, if you're not, if you're not selling enough, you know, if you're not a good enough, uh, trader, whatever it can be, you know, if you sink to that bottom 25% of, of the performance, you know, you're, you're, you're out the door uh, pretty quick. Right. So of course that, that competitiveness, um, you know, that moral can hazard kind of bring forth a, a lot of good things, but it can also trigger some, some behavior that's not necessarily uh, the best. And of course, then even more so important that you have a good <laughs> compliance function, internal audit, uh, legal function, uh, HR functions and, and so on that can kind of balance these things uh, out. Uh, but definitely, for, I would say for sure, there's a different mindset. Uh, you don't have the same, you know, uh, quality mindset that you probably would have in the pharmaceutical sector. So 
in terms of being a compliance officer, you have to be very much more, even more skilled to work, I think, in the financial sector. Um, you have to be really good at marketing, selling in, uh, you know, what it is that you're here to do and how you can help. Uh, then, then, and you're kind of being giving, uh, given a lot of that already in the pharmaceutical uh, sector. I mean, this is very generalizing, but sure, sure. I, I think those are some of the conclusions that I've uh, tried to, to draw from. Yeah, it's almost in the financial sector because, you know, it's like there the product is money, essentially. I mean, it's very, mm. that's a very sort of dumbed down uh, distillation of it. But the product over there is money. The product on the pharma side is making someone's life longer or making their healing them or some kind of, you know, something kind of, like you said, a positive um, impact. So on that financial side, in many cases, you're kind of swimming upstream, so to speak, because not everybody has that same, you know, uh, life over everything, so to speak, uh, type of mentality yeah. that's on the pharma side. And, and I, I think, um, you know, again, it's generalizing, but, but it, you know, a lot of places you end up, I think, in, in, when, you, when you work at compliance, you say, okay, a lot of the key risks are with uh, sales because you know they are the one they're, they're the front people who are out right. there trying to to sell the product they're out there uh, talking to to the external parties and so on so that's where naturally a lot of the risk are not necessarily stating that those people are more bad than anyone else but but of course they work in an environment where they they have to balance a lot right. of things and, and so on that if you work in a headquarters setting in a back office function you just don't have those challenges but um, I think also in what I saw is that in the financial sector, you also do hire a lot of, uh, you know, very young people right out of school uh, because they're able to, to, you know, it, uh, yeah. they don't need the same expertise, I guess. Uh, whereas in pharmaceutical sector, I think a lot of the sales staff, you know, they're educated nurses and healthcare professionals that have worked uh, in the in a hospital setting and so on. So I think they have a longer, you know, professional history before they become a sales rep for the pharmaceutical. And I think also perhaps it's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different preparation for that uh, high risk environment that you're in when you are a, a sales rep. Um, so it's kind of interesting, right? So there's this in portfolio theory. Um, if you're building a, an investment portfolio and you're young and it's your first year uh, working, you can be extremely risky, right? You can be very, you, you know, you don't have to be that risk averse. You have a high risk tolerance, but then mm. if you're five years from retirement, that portfolio needs to shift towards something that's very safe because you need to keep your nest egg and so forth. So there's this general sort of decline, or I guess this increase in like risk aversion as we age. And it's interesting. You talked about those workforces in general, again, broad brushstrokes, mm. but these workforces in general are relatively uh, at different sort of tenures in their career, different uh, maturation in terms of how they view risk and so forth. And that in and of itself can kind of give you another leg up from a compliance or an ethical perspective, because those people are a little bit more well-versed. They're going to be a little bit more risk averse and they're going to understand the bigger picture in terms of, you know what, the only shortcut is really a long cut and they got to do this thing right, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I think that's for sure. And, and I, I guess I, I mean, yeah, I, a lot of this is, you know, perception, but I don't know if, if there's also something that can be attributed to, you know, uh, when you are in a business school, uh, you know, you, you probably already there, get a little more competitive mindset. Right. Uh, you know, you know, that big consult, 
good yeah. big consultancies out there. You want to be with uh, McKinsey, uh, Boston Consulting, or one of the big investment banks, or Goldman, and and so right. on. So so th- there's a huge competitiveness in the in the field of study I- even already. And whereas I think you know if you if you train to become a nurse or a healthcare professional. The jobs out there, uh, you know, uh, there's not a, a high em- unemployment rate. And whether you work at one hospital or another, it probably doesn't make the same difference as you feel like when you're in the, in the business setting uh, at, at, at a business school. So, so uh, you know, in terms of that acceptance of risk and so on, what do I do to get ahead a little bit? Um, that could also already there be be a trigger uh, to some point. Yeah, that's a you know that's that's a huge point. I kind of uh, like to joke around that nobody is. Um, sorry, one second. Yeah, so no one is trying to choose between being a bond trader and being a compliance officer. To your point, mm. those paths are very different. The incentives along those paths, the payoffs are mm. uh, denominated in different things. Right, one is sort of money focused. One is maybe making a difference in the world focus or whatever. Um, and so just getting a dialing in your understanding of what the general, uh, the generalized sort of path of folks in your organization are can give you some insights into what kind of behaviors you might need to curtail and what kind of policies or interactions or attention grabbing pieces you're going to need to steer those behaviors toward the right direction. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. And, and I mean, what that, I think that's one, uh, I mean, I, I, I keep, Thinking about what what can I improve, of course, of of the compliance program that I'm working on, and you know what's the next step, and I think for sure, I mean the the whole what data can I get to to show me where I need to make a difference, but also the whole behavioral. Uh, analytics part of thing, you know, why do people do as they mm-hmm. do? Why uh, why do certain uh, type of risk always present themselves if you're part of a management uh, group how does it be if you're already a, a part of the of the the sales uh, sales staff and you know that whole incentive what why do you do what what encourages you to do something what triggers you you know and uh, i think you know if i've been a, a psychologist or something uh, that that would have been perfect uh, background as a compliance officer as well because that that's great insights to have that that i don't naturally have uh, from being a lawyer but it's something that i recognize it's a huge part of my job as well and and have to figure or think about that well who should be the behavioral science experts in the organization marketing maybe uh finance probably not it's probably not going to be the salespeople unless Mm. i mean beyond the extent that they utilize that to generate sales if Mm. we're trying to i mean if our greatest assets are our people then the ethics and compliance or the HR functions, which essentially manage and are uh, stewards of those people, need to be those experts. And they should be the yeah. ones to be able to speak into conversations that they're tangentially a part of to drive toward the goal of that p- specific department, assuming, again, that that is in line with the broader uh, goal of the organization. So, you know, none of this stuff, I mean, we all may be wired a little bit differently. Our personality types might open us up to tune in more to you know, how someone is wired or to read the room better or whatever. But just like, uh, just like anything, that is a field of study that is totally complementary to our basic field of study, which is ethics and compliance, similar to how you took that, uh, that project management course, because, hey, this is all project management. And that's not something that I'm just born with. We also should be educating ourselves on this behavioral science piece so that we understand mm-hmm. how people um, 
are, you know, wired, how they're going to respond to things. And I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit about the role that incentives play in the behaviors that we see people exhibit. And, you know, we can talk about kind of positive incentives or negative incentives or implied incentives, but so much of that is what governs us. And so much of those, those incentives, uh, many of them, again, are subconscious or they're unspoken, are what sort of create the guard, the guardrails around whatever culture we're living in. Mm. No, I, um, I, I think definitely incentives is, uh, is an important uh, element to consider why people do different things. I mean, you have, you know, the, the fraud triangle to, to say, okay, when, when do you have that perfect storm of someone uh, being able and wanting to commit fraud for, for a company? So there are some incentives in, in some ways there, or at least some possibilities to, to act. Uh, but it, I think if I just start with my, you know, my own person and my, my own function that I have in a company, then what is my incentive? You know, I, I think it's a difficult job that I have yeah. in the sense that I have to be really a, a voice that asks some questions sometimes at very difficult times. And I have to ask them to people who are in charge of things. So uh, I think that in itself uh, is a very difficult role to, to fill. And what is my incentive to really do that and not just uh, you know, be have some cultural numbness totally. about, well, we'll let this uh, thing slide and it'll make my day uh, easier if I don't have to have that uh, tough uh, discussion with someone. So uh, I guess one thing is when, I, um, when I'm being employed by a company, uh, I, I, you know, I require a pretty long uh, termination period. Because that's a, that's a, uh, you know an incentive period uh, term for me to be able to speak up towards management. Yeah. If I don't, if I know I don't have a one month uh, termination period, my incentive to perhaps ask some difficult questions and so on, that's that should hopefully reduce uh, that risk for me because I know okay if I have a long, then at least. I have a long time to figure something else out if yeah, I'm right. being fired because I ask these diff difficult uh, questions. So uh, I think that's one incentive that that you can say for me. And then I know in the financial sector, for instance, uh, you know, it really has uh, it, it's um, required that the bonus incentive should not be a too large part of a compliance officer's role. Uh, within Europe, at least and within this uh, piece of regulation that come into force, because of course, the higher the bonus and, and short term yeah. KPIs that the company wants to fulfill, you know, the less likely you are as a compliance officer to stop any of those business deals from right. uh, materializing if they are at least unethical, but perhaps the perhaps business, uh, you know, uh, positive for, for right. on a financial perspective. So, um, so, you know, for me, uh, that could be, an, of course, another incentive for me uh, personally in, in uh, lifting my role uh, is how much of my salary is a fixed salary and how much is a, is a, a bonus salary. Right. And if I was fully com you know, commission paid or bonus paid, I think that would have a detrimental uh, impact on the function that I play. Uh, so, so similarly... Uh, if I twist that around for people who have other functions where the very largest part of the salary could be a bonus, yep. then of course, what you know, what are they, uh, what are the, what are the things that they are triggered by? And I, 
you know, I'm not going to, I haven't been, uh, I guess, successful and I really haven't tried it in any of the jobs that I had to necessarily minimize the the bonus payout that typically, let's say, a, a sales rep would be getting. Right. But what I would like is to introduce a compliance element yeah. in before they get that bonus uh, payout. So ha- have they had any uh, misconduct? Have they had any policy wow. violations in, in the past year? Um, and I think that's that's been the most ten- tangible way of trying to keep some incentive on ethical conduct. But I also, in some ways, think it's a bit negative uh, way. You know, if you haven't had yeah. anything uh, negative conduct, you can get your full how about we perhaps incentivize good behavior? You know, if you've done something extremely well, right. uh, you know, to, to promote compliance, uh, ethical conduct, if you, we know you were caught in that difficult situation and you did the right thing for, for the company uh, on an ethical perspective, you will get an additional bonus or something right. like that. You know, yeah, that's, like that's a bonus or something. Yeah. I mean, that's a even, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I always like doing competitions. I always like doing uh, these things to promote my um, compliance program. So whenever I launch something, I always trigger it to some kind of competition and give an award and, and so on. But, uh, but if we could do that in the bonus scheme of things, uh, maybe that would be, I think that in a lot of sense, even more positive than if you just say, we will withhold some of your bonus right. if you don't. Uh, yeah. Right. Cause but, withholding, withholding the bonus is a, is a stick and, mm. you know, giving the bonus for ethical behavior is sort of more of a carrot and generally you're going to get better sort of, sort of performance out of some balance of the two, but really a over, over proportion of that positive reinforcement can, yeah. can be better. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit. You you stood up how many programs at this point? Six, five or six? Uh, yeah, f- uh, five, yeah. So yeah. you've learned a lot along the way. Each one gives you a bunch of experiences that you can carry forward to the next one, puts more tools in your toolbox that you can use to build your next house. Um, when you, you know, there's something about this that you like, uh, unless you're a total masochist and you hate <laughs> it and you just throw yourself in these situations, but there's something about it you like. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like, what is it you like about standing up a program um, in terms of the impact that you can see or whatever? And then also, um, what have you, like, what is your mentality when you're starting from scratch on that blank canvas when there's no pro- program in place? How do you sort of start to build your program or build your, uh, your project, you know, management Gantt chart of which things mm. you're going to attack first and so forth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess to the, the, the first part of the question, whether I'm a masochist, uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess to some extent uh, I am because, I, I mean, it, you know, I think I often do come home uh, after a, a workday and think, you know, why the hell am I in this job function? Because this is no easy task at all. Uh, and, and, you know, having these quarrels with yourself, did I do the right thing? Did I speak up enough about this issue? Did I stand by my own beliefs and, and ethical values? And and I think, for instance, on my uh, LinkedIn uh, profile, I, I think I've phrased in my um, kind of uh, catchphrase something about that I 
uh, have a pragmatic approach to problem solving. But I think really that's only one part of me because I'm also an idealist caught in the body of someone who's a pragmatist. <laughs> so so I, I, think, I think I'm in this job function because I, by nature, uh, I'm a little bit of an idealist. Uh, you know, when I see someone uh, jaywalking, when I see someone cutting off someone, not just me, but someone else uh, in line, uh, all these things, you know, I, it, it triggers something in me. Yeah. So I, I don't necessarily have uh, the right uh, compass or the right balance between what is right and wrong. I don't claim to have that, but I can feel in my body that it probably triggers a little bit more of me than other people yeah. when I see something that is that I don't feel is right. So of course, th in that sense, this job is perfect for me because that's a big part of it is right. trying to uh, advise a company and the management about what is probably uh, the right thing or, and not, not just in a compliance sense with uh, being in compliance with the law, but also from the ethics sense, is this really the right thing to do? So right. of course, I'd like to do that. But at the same time, I have to be pragmatic about it and also know that that you know, not everyone feel uh, the same as me uh, operating a uh, listed company uh, on a stock exchange or even just privately owned company. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of gray areas that yeah. you operate in. There are decisions being made where you have to accept risk. Perhaps you don't dig into all of the risk because you're right. too afraid of what you figure out and um, all of these things. And and I have to be pragmatic about, about it in order to be able to keep working in, in a company and accept that that's that those are the terms that an international uh, business operates in. But at least I have a sphere of influence where I can try to to say, okay, you know, is this the right thing to right. do? And and uh, and I, I guess. Uh, I guess that's the masochist in me that, that kind of <laughs> like to be put in that situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think that speaks a little to to why am I uh, why am I in in this job that uh, it, it fulfills the idealist of it me and at the same time I do have that pragmatist and and trying to balance all of this and and help the the, the management. Uh, make the right decisions. I, I guess at the end of the day is, is something that, that intrigues me. Um, as to, to the kind of the second part of the, the questions on what my uh, approach is when I, I start off with a, a new, new uh, job of implementing a compliance program. Um, you know, I, I definitely, uh, I guess the structure to it is, is to tr make this gap uh, analysis, um, you know, I, I guess regardless of what industry I'm in, regardless of, of the maturity of the company that I am in, whether it's listed, privately owned, whatever, I like to just kind of get my bearings. Okay, where, where are we at? Uh, so, you know, I have my key elements. I have the, uh, you know, is, is there a function already? Is there a mandate by the, the board of directors? Those are kind of just the organizational pieces of it. Then is there a risk uh, enterprise risk management process in place that can provide some guidance as yeah. to, to the risk that we're dealing with? Uh, is there any training in place, policies and guidelines in place? Are there any controls in place? 
how's the 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 tone from the top how how's communication in general in this uh, the open door policy and whatnot how are there due diligence uh, in place for for third parties and is there a speak up culture is there a compliance hotline uh whistleblower hotline and is there any type of kind of standard reporting going up to uh, board, the board of directors and and management. And I think those are all the elements that I will make the, the gap analysis on, say, what's in place, uh, what, where should we probably be uh, considering uh, the scope of our business, the, the, the nature of the product that we have, and so on, and then start to have those discussions. And, and um, so, so I think that's the that's the kind of the core process I focus on. <clears throat> and then uh, luckily that opens the door on talking to a, a right. huge amount of people within the company, uh, working across all these uh, elements. Uh, but then I'm very, very focused on um, it's just trying to come across as, as nice as possible because uh, you know, last thing I want to be is, is the policeman. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, uh, here they they hadn't had this function before, uh, and I don't think necessarily in this industry like luxury goods and um, the type of consumer goods that we're in that it's very normal to have a compliance department. So there were not a lot of people working here that had a preconception of what com- a compliance officer is doing, what a compliance program is doing. Whereas in pharmaceutical uh, financial sector, they all know about it. So if you have had a predecessor that's been the policeman, you know that's a difficult thing to come in and change people's mind that this is something else. Um, so luckily, I, I wasn't met by that at least in my my current function. And uh, and uh, I, I think in in. General terms, I've been able to still come across as the nice guy that people <laughs> want to talk to, and uh, not the, the the police officer at all. So let's do this. Um, that was great. I, you know, I think so many folks, um, you know, when they step in and they have to stand up a program, they're like, "Where do I start?" And taking that kind of analytical approach to say, like, "Okay, what's in place? What kind of mandates are there? External, internal." What kind of things do we have in place that I could perhaps repurpose? Let's build this gap analysis. And then we start having conversations with folks. Gives you so much opportunity, not only to build your case and get a, get a high confidence interval around the path you need to take to wind up at the program that you need, but also to your point, gives you that opportunity to have those interactions with folks and start to build those relationships. Because look, at the end of the day, if you're not a police officer, you don't have a gun on your hip. You can't force people at gunpoint to have ethical behavior. They have to do it mm-hmm. from some discretionary you know, bucket of effort. Um, so I, I, I just love that kind of risk based approach, that top down approach to get the lay of the land and so forth. Um, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's say I have a a magic zoom meeting set up with between you and you 20 years ago. What advice would you give your younger self? Uh, I think for, for sure is that do not, if you want to work with compliance, do not take things personally. I mean, it's been the number one struggle I've had. Uh, I would say, at least for the first six years of of uh, you know being being employed uh, full time, yeah. working as a compliance officer, uh, because you know you are being 
you know, I, I've never met, I think, people who are aggressive towards me or anything like that. But I, I definitely have met a lot of people who are challenging me on whether, uh, you know, I'm just some guy who comes in and, and stops all the fun. And, uh, and you know, what are, what are all these different things that they need to do all of a sudden? Yeah. And why can't they just do as they always did? All these, you know, very classic uh, challenges. And for the first many, many years, I took these things personally. I, I, I took them home with me. Yeah. You know, why can't, why, why don't they like me? <laughs> why, you know, all of these things. And, and I couldn't separate the, the function that I played, the advice that I was giving to Nikolai, the, the private person. Right. And, and that really, I think, impacted me. It made the job much more, much, much uh, more harder yeah. uh, than, than what it had to be. And since I've been able to put that away, it's been such an easier job, you know, and, and, uh, and I think that's made everything a lot easier. So that's the, by far the number one uh, advice I, I would give myself, uh, uh, you know, a uh, long time ago. Um, yeah, that's great advice. Uh, I'm going to take some of that advice myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's so hard to separate because we put so much of ourselves into our work. We care so much about it right? Um, we are our work in this knowledge work economy. So it's hard to separate those things from, you know, like you said, the role that I'm playing and the person that I am, you know? Yeah. And it, I, I think, I mean, it is impossible to separate, but, but uh, at least having that acknowledgement that yeah. there are, there, there is a difference. And I, I think from one of your other uh, podcast episode, um, you know, you, you discussed with, with someone about how, you know, everything is personally, you know, you know, whatever you do in your job, establishing relationships, you, you, that is personal things. Right. You know, you you are interacting with people, so right. you, you can't say by don't definition. take this. Per by definition, right. you you cannot say this is not personal, right. because it is. When you interact with people, it is personal. But but still, again, you know, it's like what are the, what is this person getting mad about? Well, it's that person is probably getting mad that, you know, you're changing something he was used to, to be able to do that has nothing to do with you as a person. Right. Uh, so, so being able still to, to se separate that. And I think some of my, my greatest success as well um, has been when I've, uh, when I've had that feeling that I'm starting to go down a wrong path with someone who's a key stakeholder of mine. So, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've worked with, uh, a, a person I remember that um, worked in, in uh, marketing and we just, we seem to kind of keep getting small conflicts and the conflicts were getting a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And it was getting to the point where, you know, we started to cut, you know, in email correspondence, all of a sudden copy in, you know, yeah. higher up management uh -huh. and so on game. to put up, put more pressure on. And finally I was just like, ah, this is, this is really not going to end well. So uh, I just took up, uh, uh, pulled up the, the courage to to go and have a conversation with that person. And we, we chatted for, you know, an hour or so. And I, I just started the conversation and say, you know, I feel we're starting to move down a path. I don't like, you know, why don't we just kind of talk this out? And, you know, we cleared so many misunderstandings. We had the best uh, collaboration afterwards. And being able to take that tough, to, you know, conversation was was amazing, and it's been a, a guiding uh, star for me ever since to to try and do that whenever I have someone that I can feel this is this is really not going well, uh, to to try and just stop up and and have that conversation. 
Yeah, it's so smart to do that because to your point, that person on the other side of that conversation, they're taking stuff personally as well. And at, yeah, some, yeah. at some level, we're all sort of searching for, um, for, for security and we achieve that mm-hmm. through control or we achieve that through approval or some balance between those things. And many times when you're coming in with a new policy that's threatening someone's control over their process or the, uh, you know, the smoothness with which their business operates or their unit op- operates or something, that ends up turning into a lack of control that threatens that security. So many times, to your point, it's coming from this visceral place with someone and it can yeah. very quickly get off on that bad path. So good on you for learning that, that lesson. I mean, you know, it's kind of cliche to say, but like life is relationships and especially in the ethics and compliance game, because we don't have that position, positional authority, we have to lean into more influence. And that opens up the gate for us, for a ton of magic to happen, a ton of uh, persuasion to happen, a ton of new relationships to be built. Um, and you know, what's, you know, I always kind of talk about this, but like, um, the relationship between you know your effort and the impact that you have in your organization, whether that's risk uh, elimination or that's you know organizational influence or whatever that impact is, that doesn't necessarily have to be a linear relationship. That can be a parabolic relationship. And many times, there's so many tools in place within a within a, a business. I mean, a business of some sizes are going to have a bunch of different functions and a bunch of different mm-hmm. different things in place that you can use as leverage points to really accelerate that impact per unit of effort in your organization, but it takes doing things like this. It takes getting the drone out. It takes, you know, giving something fully baked over to uh, communications for them to just drop it on SharePoint with no, you know, no sweat off their brow. Mm. It takes putting your pride aside and looking at the longer game and reaching out to somebody for a cup of coffee or going out to lunch to smooth over any rough spots that you might be feeling as you're trying to push whatever change, you know, is there. And really what, what I think we're talking about, and I think you emulate, you know, magnificently is bringing that, that humanity into our jobs. Like if the assets, so to speak, uh, are human beings and those human beings behaviors in aggregate, you know, build up to the risk profile of our organization. And that's what we're fighting against. Well, then we have to figure out how to change all those, all those behaviors. And there's a thousand ways to do it that are beyond reading a regulation or, you know, typing up a, uh, uh, a policy that checks all the regulatory boxes. We have to in- influence those behaviors and that's going to come through that authenticity and through those relationships and, and things like that. So um, this has been a phenomenal episode. Thank you so much for coming on, Nikolai. I want to be conscious of time. Where can people learn more about you? Where can they find you uh, to see some more of your genius and bask in the glow of your ideas? <laughs> Uh, uh, I think it's pr- pretty simple. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, I, I do from time to time share some observations that I think I have. Uh, so far, it's been very linked to to kind of the development of compliance as a discipline in Denmark and the Nordic countries and uh, the whole, uh, you know, uh, thought about the Nordic countries being some of the least corruptive uh, right. countries in the world, whereas uh, when you live here, you do see uh, things happen and, and you start to question uh, really the, 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 the results of the CPI, uh, but, but of course hope that they are true. So I tr- share some thoughts about that sometimes uh, in articles on, on LinkedIn and, uh, and I, I really welcome and you've inspired me to, to reach out to a lot of other uh, people that you had on your show and I've set up a few calls with some of them just awesome. to really get more inspiration. So, um, you know, please link up with me on, on LinkedIn for whoever is listening in here and I'll, I'll be happy to get more inspiration. I, I have so much to learn still in this space. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I just want to keep learning, keep, keep building on, on getting some input as well. 
But that learning opportunity that you have is the same one that I have, the same one that all of us have because our profession is not mature yet. It's still changing and mm -hmm. there's so much going on with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm going to keep singing this song from the rooftops that we have a very special community in the ethics and compliance space. I'm sure none of those people you, you reached out to didn't give you the time of day. I'm sure they all hopped on the phone with you, and I'm sure you guys had a great conversation, and you were able to share some things with them, and you were able to, to get some things uh, from them to implement in, in your own thing. And we will continue to build this community, and this community is going to continue to be the, the differentiator for us to drive more influence in our organization. So thank you for being this, the example yeah. of this Compliance 3.0 uh, you know, leader. Thanks for coming on and being so generous with your time and your insights. This was really a lot of fun, man. No, it's definitely my pleasure. And, and thank you for being a facilitator of, of getting the community together in this as well. Thank Absolutely. you so much. All right, until next time. Bye.